This is Paul. And this is Caroline. And we're here to talk about the final two episodes of the second season of Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Their names are number one is Vote Kennedy, Vote Kennedy, right? Right? Yes. And the other one is All Alone. Kennedy Kennedy's, uh, I'm not quite sure what that one is. but oh, uh, I can tell you, Paula. It's that she wasn't allowed to talk about politics or anything crazy on the telethon. And she immediately, when she got on camera, went, vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy. Ah, that's <laughs> right. Okay. So it was, her, it was her constant need to break the rules, right? These two episodes are... Not as, I guess, explicitly connected as all of the other episodes that we've joined together in the same podcast, except they do both feature TV, so there's that connection. Well, and I really think that the flow between the telethon and everything with Sophie and Shy Baldwin obviously flows very clearly into it, episode yeah, it, it ties 10. Together. So, it, this yeah, is I mean, like it the, flows. It's A to B. It's a, it's a speed up to next season, basically. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, it sets us up. So we are going to go by character instead of the flow of these two episodes. So we're going to start off actually with not just one character, but two. We're going to talk about relationships with Midge and Benjamin and Joel. So we have a couple of things that happen with both of these guys. Most especially, we have this flashback scene where we are going to compare and contrast the engagement proposals of both Joel and Benjamin. What did you think about the Joel proposal? It was like uh, like the passionate kind of shit you'd expect from young people, right? He was, he was kind of larger than life. She still had her blonde hair, so, you know, crazy times. And See, I'm his grand gesture I think it started off super cash, right? It was meant to seem that way. He just like slides the ring down the countertop and he knows her so well that she's not just going to say yes. He knows that she's going to give him a hard time. So then he says, well, I'm just going to go stand in traffic until you say yes. And he goes out there. Obviously this is so planned because when she finally says yes and goes running out there, he waves his hand and the music comes pumping out into the street and they that's start. That's a grand gesture. That's the grand gesture. And they start dancing, which you guys know for me, swoon. Like actually was like, oh, when they started dancing. Like I love that. Now on the flip side, we have Benjamin who actually goes and speaks a little bit with Rose. I obviously tipping his hand that he is going to ask Miriam and Rose lets him know that she's at the park so that she can force the meet the children moment, which is a very Emily Gilmore move there for sure. How do you think that that would go over in most situations where like, you just know, like you haven't one. chosen to have your kids meet this yeah. guy yet? Well, just like it did where she gets uncomfortable. The kids have no idea what's going on. And Joel is like later on, it would be a courtesy if you were to let me know Who's meeting my kids? And you know what? I think that that is actually like kind of like a rule. Now, I know that they're not formally divorced, but from the people that I know who are divorced, I think that there's something in the divorce decree that there is some sort of verbiage about like when you meet somebody else or if you're bringing another person into the situation, you're supposed to heads up your ex-spouse. So that was a very uncouth situation. However, Benjamin plays it totally by the book when it comes to actually asking Midge 
to marry him. There really is no grand gesture. It's all just done like, so if we were to get married, then, you know, I obviously would be here for the kids. And then, you know, episode 10, we see him spending all of his time with Abe working on the financials. The financials, and, right. And, you know, that, that questionnaire that Abe's asking, like, cats or dogs? This is very important. And my most favorite line is, Ben's like, um, I need to get up and use the bathroom. And Abe goes, oh, you do that? Like, oh my God, Abe is not having this. He is not having a second divorce, not having it. So this is just like raking Benjamin over the coals, though he's being a good sport, right? Oh, he's giving Abe everything he needs. I mean, that's your big indicator that Ben is is down for this. He's totally playing the game, willing to go the, the mile. I mean, he doesn't, this is interesting. We haven't actually seen him totally with the kids, be interested in kids, be, be well, capable around kids. Guys get, that get to be that. his age don't have any knowledge of what to do with kids. Well, he didn't really interact with the children. I mean, he just, are you talking about just in the park? At all in in any of these episodes? Yeah, no, he totally didn't. And and I think in this in the day and age of when this was you know supposed to be in fifty nine, he wouldn't anyway. I mean, he's a doctor. It, the, these are not his children. I really think it would be like a pat on the head, and you know, very um, Betty Draper's new husband was shit. Uh, the the councilman or congressman, whatever he was, the, yes. the politician. I mean, he was, you know, he was not a father to. He had that grand house yes. with the with his mom, right? That uh-huh. lived in the and house. It was all and... super uncomfortable and stuff. He was never, you know, a, a father figure to those kids. So, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, you know, Benjamin would just be Midge's husband. He was polite about the kids. And really, if you look at Esther, my God, she's only like. 18 months or something, you but know? The guy with so much art and stuff like that, and, and, and he's a collector, so, so he's probably got um, other stuff, too. I cannot imagine. You know? Little sticky jam hands. No. Yeah, so this was a big setup. I was excited that Benjamin wanted to make this move. I felt sick in my belly that... As excited as Midge was, I was just feeling not great about it. They really felt they made the flashback look very exciting, very dynamic, very energetic. And they made everything with Benjamin seem so bland. And the thing that kind of bums me out about that is that that's not the way that Benjamin had come off the entire time. He had been so snarky with her and, you know, the whole thing where I eat my one bowl of cereal and then I leave and all stuff. Like there was a lot of like, kind of like, I don't know, like maybe I'm missing it. Maybe I thought he was more exciting than he really was. And I guess in just saying that, looking back at the cat skills, I mean, I guess he was listening to news radio, like NPR in the car. Like yeah. he, I guess, while he represents security and safety, I mean, I guess he is kind of, you know, more boring, I well, suppose. Well, I mean, he's a grown-ass man compared to the, the kid the that antics. Joel was. Yeah. Right, that's true. Um, we did have the the um, Benjamin actually going to see Midge's show and being extremely supportive and saying what an amazing job that she had done. Um, Susie, like, completely being such a weirdo and being like, kiss her. That that's that's your kiss, like kiss her harder, like <laughs> Sue's getting a, getting a little bit feeling like a she doesn't have enough room to breathe there. The optics of the height of Benjamin next to the tininess of Susie yeah. was hilarious. I mean that, oh the casting, love it, love it. I'm trying to remember the scene where I guess they're kind of regrouping after the set, right? And Susie's so awkward. Yeah. 
Is it just that that she's in some way intimidated that he's even there during that part of the- I think it's that she doesn't want him to have any influence over Midge. And so like the fact that he's like laughing at a joke that- Susie deemed not not ready yet like he didn't she didn't want Ben to be offering up support on things like unilaterally when she wanted her voice to really be what Midge was listening to and so there was a lot of I think like push and pull about like well who's Midge really going to listen to is it really going to be her new husband because that's what Susie had just dealt with with Joel barging in there yelling you know everything so you can imagine this is a gigantic threat to to whether Midge is going back to jello molds. The read I got off Benjamin during this segment was a lot, not too far distant down the um, relationship road from when they went to the play, which was still trying to figure Midge out. Like, what is this thing I have next to me? You My know? favorite line about that is when, when he is worried that he answered the snacking question wrong and she's like, well, you didn't say you snack between meals, did you? And he was like, well, sometimes I do. And she's like, oh, and he's like, well, what? but you know, like this whole thing. So she asked, am I worth it? Like, am I worth all this? And he says, yes. And so to me, it was like, while he was still figuring her out, she had absolutely won his heart. And in terms of like feeling like no matter what hoops were put in front of him, and Abe was certainly throwing the hula hoops out in front of him to jump through, it was well established that he was in it. You know, this was it. He really loved her. So with the way that that ultimately shakes out, where Ben, I mean, he doesn't, even though he, he, he was the first to know officially about her dual life so that makes him kind of like part of the comedian life to an extent and now part of her family life which are the pretty much the i mean that her work life isn't important because that doesn't really involve spouses well but it does in terms of like in that day and age specifically like i mean there has to be like permission that she can go do this like she's not going to be home making brisket sure sure but that's a huge part of this though so does it make you at all uncomfortable with with midge how she's what she ultimately decides to do at the end of the show you know which is betray benjamin on a certain level right the the, that she says am i worth it but she still has kind of like some reserve in her capacity for caring about him that she does care about him and that is that is why she's making the decision she does at the end we'll cover that definitely at the at the end of Midge and Susie's section. So let's finish up with the guys here. So we have Joel, right? He's going through his own stuff. Moish decides that he is not interested in having Joel follow in his footsteps. This was a big surprise to me. Yeah, me too. I, I, I'm I, confused. I guess they're pivoting Joel to have this like whole new storyline in season three. Maybe they felt like they had done all they could at the factory. I'm not really sure, but it really felt odd that all of a sudden Moish was like, oh, by the way, he had mentioned earlier that he had been taking all of the money from graduation and bar mitzvah. That was a uh, flashback. Established. Yeah. And so to give him $60,000 and that, you know, 59 was like, holy smokes. I mean, that is everything. He can start his own way now. Right. I really was kind of barfing in my mouth about the idea that he would buy a club, though. All along, he's been saying that that Midge is good. And it's kind of like, maybe it's like coaching, right? Where, like, if you look at the sidelines of the NFL, you'll see a lot of guys that have some history with playing football. 
just not like 20 years of, of professional football. Usually it's like, it's like they got so far and then they figured out coaching was really their thing. So it's like, they have an eye for what's good, but they themselves aren't actually that good at it. You know what I mean? That's kind of him, right? He's not that good at being funny, but he knows funny when he sees it. Okay. So you think that he will make a good like booker and owner of a club. He just isn't necessarily the, the act on the stage. Well, they went out of their way to show us that he knew how to turn a business around. That's very true. That makes me wonder, do you think he's going to do something so obvious as purchase, say, the gaslight? Ooh, that would be uncomfortable, wouldn't it? Well, what do you think? Mm. A little season three prediction? Well... Will it be a new club? Will it be a competing club? Or will it be the Gaslight? You know, that uh, that idea makes like 100% sense because TV shows are just rotten with saving on set money. I was just going to say, you know it's I mean? all about production value, isn't it? <laughs> right. So having two sets that are, that are basically the same thing, uh, that, yeah, I bet... Half the time that we see a, a comedy club, it's it's just the redressed uh, oh, I'm gaslight. It is, you know? yeah, for sure. But in this case, I think it will actually make sense because do you remember that the owner of the gaslight was very like hands off? Yep. Like he only like came in town to like deal with Susie and like leave. Right. So it makes a lot of sense, and plus that's where Joel is comfortable. Like it doesn't make sense that he would go off and purchase some unknown club or that he would try to like build his own or something. It makes sense that he would go somewhere and try to acquire it. So. They've established the gas like so clearly with us that yeah. it just feels like that's a tremendous idea. That's my guess. So, Joel, the Archie scene I thought was poignant when they were hitting the baseballs and talking about life, and they had hit all these baseballs. They actually did a really great job of cracking that bat like exactly simultaneously. It looked pretty great. That was actually a very amazing scene because they didn't cut back and forth between the men. It was just all a wide yeah. shot and they had to get through it all, hit all the balls. Yeah. And like you said, synchronize it from right, time to time. Uh, right. Yeah. And right at the end, they both smack it at the same time, which was pretty amazing. But the line that I just thought was really great was that they realized that they had hit all these balls and now that they were they were going to have to go pick them all up. And it was funny because they looked at each other and they said, so many things we should have thought through before we started. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that that was like, whew. You know, like how many of us could relate to that? Like, wow, you know, you do all these things. You set out your resumes. You you send out an engagement. You, you do sleep all, with Penny Pan. You sleep with Penny Pan. And then you realize you got to go pick up the mess that you made. It's like, shit, I should have thought that through. That's you a know? metaphor. Okay, moving on to a man who loves a good metaphor, Paul Daly. That would be Abe. Good old Abe. Abe has had one hell of a season. Oh my God. Noah asks to meet up with him, right? And they have this conversation in the bar and it turns out that Noah, because of this secret job, knew that the Bell Labs project had been completely trashed. And it was all trashed because of exactly what I saw as like a problem was when Midge was in that comedy club in D.C. and she blurted out the crap about Bell Labs. Right. Now, you know what? The fact that the kitchen caught on fire 10 seconds after she said that makes oh so much sense. That's exactly what happened. It was it was some spook somewhere that that needed her to shut up and that was the that was the only way they could figure out how to do it. I thought that it was heartbreaking to watch Abe go through this experience of having to be so angry, go to Columbia, have this really like almost nobody's in his class. He spends the whole time yelling at them when he drew that little equation on the board about how incompetent they all were. <laughs> 
Oh my uh, God! I wish I could insult people as well as Abe could. I mean, that that's it's like just, complicated insults, right? But I mean, by the end of it, the person knows. Oh yeah, that they are that they are beneath an, uh, the contempt of uh, of of a piece of shit, you know. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's that's artful insulting. So good. So highbrow, right? So then Simon stops by and talks to Abe about, you know, that they should, he needs to take a sabbatical and realizing that he does have tenure and they can't fire him. Abe acts like a freak and basically is like acting like he's going to kill them all or do something drastic. So do you think that it made sense to have Columbia come and talk to him and be like, look, this is not going well? Yeah, I mean, you if you're going to have a character go through a dark turn like this, it can't be like a half measure, you know, where it's like, well, Bell Labs didn't work out, but Columbia's still okay, so he's still, you know, half a man. It's got to be everything shuts down. Everything that you, this is going to be hard to say, but what Abe values most about himself is his career and his intellect and that kind of stuff. It, family is firmly below that, you know what I mean? Providing for family is, is is above that, but you're right. That individual day-to-day operation of the family has zip to do with Abe. Agreed. What he values most is now fucked up. So speaking of fucked up, that Bell Lab conversation where he actually has to go in. Oh my God, I was dying with the buzzers again. The, the one when they buzz and nobody comes in, they're like, oh, someone must have accidentally hit the butt it was so like it was so hilariously like the same joke is done over and over and over again and they had done this already before and then they then it's like knock and there's no knock you know you're like oh my god you're waiting for the other moment it doesn't happen it was like oh you guys you guys are so freaking witty you know comedy is repetition and timing oh damn and that that is like to a t we learned that his intellectual property is bell labs we learned through a conversation with Rose that Columbia actually owns the apartment. What the frig? Their life is not exactly what was presented. So the intellectual property, fine. The talking computer, fine. Whatever. He doesn't He doesn't get to own that. But it's, it's a scare tactic to say, like, we own you, but that's not a thing. But yeah, the, it was, we kind of have the idea that they're very well off and it's, Yes, they're probably well off, but maybe not very well off. You know what I mean? Well, it, it's more like they were living rent free, it appeared. And so then whatever his paycheck was allowed them to live a more high society life. But yeah. the reality is they weren't paying a mortgage and they would have nowhere to live. And they were living in a very nice, you know, upper class area in New York City. So what were they going to do? You know, what now? Especially with how the the turn that... Uh, Abe plans on taking is not really one that is well known for uh, bringing in a lot of income, you know? Exactly. Well, before we leave the Bell Lab situation, we have to talk about the fact that he did stand up to the Bell Lab guys and find his sort of inner hero and defend Miriam to them. And that whole punching in the nose scene. Oh, Paul. I love that little rant that, you know, this is just, if you say anything about my daughter again, I'll punch you in those. It won't hurt very much because I'm not very strong. It's just but like, you have to be embarrassed that you were punched by a man who wasn't very strong. The was whole great. thing. Oh my God. It was so funny. So freaking funny. Um, and it really made you realize that he was starting to come around about Midge. Now, I know we've taken this a little bit out of order, so you guys might think like, well, but other stuff happened. It did. We're going to tie this all up at the end for you guys. 
But let's hop on over to the main show here, Midge and Susie. So right starting in episode nine, we have Vote for Kennedy, Vote for Kennedy. And that is all wrapped up in this television debut, the arthritis telethon, Paul. Very Jerry Lewis and MS. And I loved how they started with that choreographed diner scene where she's going from table to table to table to try to get the slot. Mm, right. So cool. So slick. The Yeah. Well, that was uh, Susie, right? B- yes. Bouncing in between tables, trying to get an in with the assistant to the person booking the, the whole thing. Yes. Yes. And, and the guy was like, I don't work for you, Susie, over and over again. <laughs> it was all super funny. I loved it. I felt like her desire for her family to actually get to see her doing legit jokes and, and being in the mainstream was so like her heart was on her sleeve. This was so important for finally for Abe and Rose. And really, they didn't dis- they didn't really um like hone in on this, but all of her friends at Bialton had saw it. The neighbors saw it. Like this was all about Abe and Rose. But the fact that everyone saw it and that Abe actually recognized, like looked out the window and saw the neighbors were watching and that everyone was laughing. I felt like this tied so much into Abe finding his strength to be able to say, you know, I think I can do something different. Look at my daughter. She's she's actually being successful. I felt like she was actually an inspiration to Abe for the moves that he's going to make in season three. That's probably right. It, from his point of view, he she's gone from sneaking around to on TV in like a week. That's true. <laughs> That's know? very true. Because he really didn't get to appreciate all that they were doing. I mean, I can only assume that all the times when they were going with the brisket with Joel, that they were not privy to the fact that Joel was doing anything. So like the amount of time that she's actually been building a rapport with Susie and the entire experience, you're right, has been really short and and wild from Abe's point of view, like world blowing up. But I'm glad he watched it. I mean, he could have been just a dick and like turned it off or went to sleep or something like that. But he did. And it was it was sweet that he was like it was it was almost like if he hadn't seen the neighbors with the TV on, he would he potentially could have yelled across the alley, been like, turn on the TV. My daughter's on TV. You're right. You're really right. He seemed to have that look in his eye like it was actual pride, you know, whereas all this time you've been lying to your father, you know. (laughs) None of that this time. Well, speaking about worlds blowing up, oh my God, she almost didn't get to be on TV because freaking Sophie Lennon came into the play here again. Complete sabotage. Well, if you've been watching this show, you've been wondering, when are they going to bring Jane Lynch back? That was too special a performance to just make it a one and done. I love that. Yes, you're exactly right. So she completely bumps everything having to do with Midge from even the phone bank. Like she's not even allowed to be shown on the TV screen. I felt like Susie was shocking in her effectiveness with Sophie. Well, she just is fresh off of being, what's the word? It's the wrong word, but you know, when, when a woman shows up a man, he's emasculated. Okay. So then reverse. Oh, because when Joel had to come and save them. Right. And it's not that she was effeminated or something like that, but it was, it was, but still she was shown up. Okay. So between, I'm going to say double time. I'm going to say what had already happened was that Joel had come and saved the day for them. And then 
Benjamin's looming threat was like also on top of that because it's just been, he's been hanging around, you know? And so the two men looming to take Midge away and now fucking Sophie's going to come in and wreck this opportunity. You're right. It, It absolutely was like enough is enough. Did you think it was going to actually be that effective? No. Sophie's not a normal person. The way that she performs is I think she has found a niche that she can she can profit from, but I don't think she understands people exactly. She just understands like what makes them laugh and and has found a way to take advantage of it, but she doesn't like feel like she exists on the same level as everybody else. You know, like more like she's an observer and someone that can crank back out like a like a mirror maybe of of something, but isn't like I'm not saying exactly right. It's it's just that So she's I think I think if I'm understanding correctly, while Midge can go up there and just have this natural humor about her, this just flow that comes out of her Jane, or we'll say Sophie's act is so calculated and so right. planned and is this character that's so fake and so, um, you know, one note that Midge can come up there and just freestyle, you know, at any point in time. And so that's something that you're right. I think that Sophie really admires and knows that if she does have the ability to do it, her current management isn't going to allow her to do that. So when she sees Susie come in and be such a champion of Midge and demand that she be given a chance to do whatever it is she wants to do. I think that in Sophie's eyes, that's so admirable that Susie can actually represent so strongly and allow her talent to be that free because she herself does not have that. Right. And yeah, that's right. She goes into uh, later on, she goes into that anecdote about how she, she only did this so that she could move on to something else. And it turns out no one wanted her for anything else. Well, yes. And especially because her management is like, you're successful, you have all this money. So that also means the management is making all this money. So they're not interested in allowing her to try anything else. And that's what really leads her into episode 10's Susie being asked to become Sophie's manager. I did not see that coming at all. I had no idea what Sophie was going to ask her when she was summoned to the house. The fact that (laughs) she had those dogs like sitting by her that, oh my God, that when they say like dogs look like their owner, oh my God, or owners look like their dogs. Oh my God, Paul. Oh my God. They were like those like long-nosed Afghan. Oh my yeah. God. Oh my God. And then, you know, Susie goes stumbling out with the mink on. <laughs> it's like everyone comes right. in, everyone gets a mink. I was like, oh my God. So now they didn't specifically show Susie answering. However, I'm going to say that there was two clues, two nuggets of information that she said yes to to Sophie. So in a little montage during the Lenny Bruce All Alone singing, we had Susie hanging up like a brand new outfit with the price tags on it. Mm. Clear to me that she either got money or was gifted the outfit, either one. Secondarily, when Midge comes in to talk about the Shy Baldwin deal, she she's her face is like stricken and she wants to tell Midge something, but we never get it out of her. So even though it's not, you know, spelled out to us, I feel very firmly that she's going to be Sophie's manager, which is great in a lot of ways for Susie, but the dynamic, you know that Sophie is so controlling that there is like no way that she's going to allow Susie to continue to manage Midge. Right. Like I, there's no way. She's so competitive and everything. No way. So any which way you look at it, I just don't feel like Susie is going to be able to 
keep both clients. So what does that mean for season three? There's no way we're not going to have the Susie Midge combo, right? Or are we well, going to have Midge go it alone for a while? It's got to reach a, a, a pinch point where Susie's going to have to be made to decide. Or perhaps, like you just insinuated, Midge might be like, you know, fine. You know, I've got this, I've got this traveling show with Shy. So that's the name, right? Shy. With Shy. So I don't technically need management for the next six months. Well, and given what happened on the tour, it's not like Susie was writing contracts or handling the money or really doing anything very effectively. So that's one thing that I feel like Sophie's whole situation, like it seems like she's going to be so in over her head, you know, like there's no way she's going to handle things um, from a business perspective at a level that Sophie could possibly be okay with. You know, I just don't see that happening. She's not going to have the negotiation skills and she certainly isn't going to have, do you remember like she was having a hard time spelling things and, you know, like just, I just don't see it happening that she's going to be able to swim with the big fish like that. She could rise through the ranks with Midge in this more grassroots effort and right. still hang in there. But I think Sophie's such an established situation that I just, that's going to go really badly. I think we're going to experience season three having them separate though and having Susie be able to maintain an entire plot line alone with Sophie and all the weirdness of like having maybe even other talent and letting Midge go alone. Whereas these two female leads have really been, you know, paired the whole time. I think they're yeah. going to split off and have these two, not unlike Lorelai and Rory, where, you know, at some point they, they split them when they, when she headed off and started a new school and stuff. And you started having these two very separate plot lines. The the other big thing that came from the telethon, obviously, is the Shy Baldwin connection. I thought it was cool that they leaned into the civil rights movement again with this one. And they talked about how he preferred to be in the ladies' room. And he said it was because of the bigger mirror and all that kind of stuff. But also, I think probably, one, he's a person of color. And two, I think he was probably pretty feminine. I don't think things would go well in the white man's bathroom. Um, and so I felt very much that, like, that was a very safe place for him to be. And mm -hmm. and I think that they kind of leaned in. It reminded me very much of um, Hidden Figures, the women having to go so far away to find the right bathrooms to be able right. to use and yeah. all that stuff. It was very, give us that kind of nod. Well, one thing I want to say about Shia is that he says that his mom is Maybelline. And, you know, it, it was interesting because it made me think about Hairspray. And how there was Motormouth Mabel. And she was this woman who was um, like like a DJ and like kind of this really avant-garde, up-and-coming. She happened to be a person of color and a woman who like really made waves in music. And so she was the one that like ran the record store. And so I thought it was kind of interesting. But also I looked up Maybelline and she was an actual comedian, also a person of color. And she, she was a part of that world as well. And so I didn't read her whole story, but I thought that it was a little interesting that kind of like Lenny Bruce, they brought in a real person in that. Mm. And so, and that was Shy Baldwin's mom. Now, why I didn't see anything about Shy Baldwin, I didn't go looking for him. I I just thought that that was interesting. Now he offers this six month gig and she says yes right away. Oh yeah. Not even a second's hesitation really. 
Do you think that was okay? Do you think that that was just being impetuous like Midge is? I mean, she was literally standing amongst those big, like, racks of wedding dresses and stuff when she was talking to Abe. And it was like, oh, my God. You know, it's like all up in their face. She's been making decisions like this all along, just counting on the fact that her parents would cover for her with the kids. I mean, (laughs) but now she has this complicating factor of Ben, who... You know, a couple episodes ago, Benjamin's not important. But meanwhile, he's he's gone through all the hoops to get uh, a proposal with her. And she still is like, he's not really, I don't, it's like he's not connecting to her, her real passion and her real life, even though he's been there for, like I've said before, the comedy life and the family life. He's been there for those things. But for some reason, it's like he hasn't really sunk in a connection yet. Because, I mean, she didn't care. And how he figures into it. She said it, remember? Point blank. Last episodes, we were just talking about this. She said, Benjamin's not important. Bam. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. there it is. Nothing more to say. Um, before we leave the telethon, there was a couple of things that I want to point out that I really loved about it. I adored that they gave so much time to those dancing, to the dance routine that they had like at the beginning, the one act. They did, normally what happens is they give it about two seconds and then they kind of pull back to the to the main actresses and they would let them talk in front and they would just be this blurry background. No, they kept the camera. They just left the camera on them and let them dance and dance and dance and dance. And then like they talked a little and guess what? The camera went back and they finished their moves. Like I was like, oh, that was, it's so refreshing and so different. Such fun entertainment. I love that. I'm not a dance specialist, as you well know. No, you're not. No. Um, but did those moves seem sort of modern for 1959? I, you know what? I was going to say that I think maybe there was a little bit of twist on that. Now, there might be somebody who's a dance connoisseur out there who's going to say, no, that is the exact dance that they did, which it could have been. Yeah. But you're right that there was a little bit about the movement that you're right. It really kind of whiffed of like some, maybe just a little bit of modernization of Right. It moves. wasn't full of like hip thrusts and things no, that you no. find these days. But but it still, it had sort of the... Highly choreographed, um, popping and locking kind of stuff. It was the more pop lock kind of feel. You're right. That was like a little more jerky that yeah. felt a little bit less. Yeah, I I, I very much liked it. Uh, also, the fact that they could never figure out the military time, that that was really funny. They were like, do we add 12? No, subtract 12. Well, like, the guy told him how to do it wrong, right? Uh, yes, and that, that was hilarious. He was like, just add 12. It was it was really funny because uh, he's like, so they're like, the time was like 21 something or whatever. And they were like, do we add 12 or subtract? It was funny. Um, and then the whole busting into the control room and that Susie had the idea that you're supposed to go in and make friends with the control room guys and the, yeah, the control room people are like, right get out, get out, get out. And at one point, the guy turns around and goes, I almost peed my pants. She came in here. Yeah. I love a good pee the pants joke. It's one of my favorites. It's always a winner. Always a winner with me. So we do have Midge do this highly, highly successful act with the um, getting this super crappy time, 11.55 time slot, but she kills it. She's like sitting on the phone bank tables. She's just relaxed as all get out, talking and chatting and just, I mean. When people start calling in. 
Yes. There hadn't and they been a lot said of they hadn't made that much money in that time block like ever. So she like not only proved her worth that she was funny, but she was like very productive for this actual show, which, oh my God, every TV show wants that, right? If yeah. you get people to tune in. It's kind of the reason they have TV. Yeah. Or you get people to, to, to donate money. All that stuff was like win, win, win. It was amazing. And I thought it was a really interesting high for her to be on for them to enter Lenny Bruce and that whole bar scene because Lenny is at such a low in this. And now we all know, as you mentioned in the previous podcast, that Lenny Bruce ultimately dies not that long after this. This is 59 and he passes away in 66. So we know that he is not long for this world at this point. And he is feeling really low right now. You know, they're the sort of mentee mentor um, partnership that they have swaps in this bar scene. I thought it was interesting, especially since, you know, the this show takes place. It takes place. What? Maybe I know we know that, that the one year anniversary of the show in its own time took place like a couple of episodes ago. Right. It was like one Are you year asking ago, what year it is? No, no, no. What? One year ago, I blew up my life. Right. 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 And, and so if you remember when he blew up his life. That was the same night she met Lenny. Lenny was still just coming into the gaslight. He wasn't a very big deal yet. And then by the end of the run of the first season, he's a headliner. He, oh, the yeah. gaslight is beneath him. Yeah, coming back to the gaslight was a big favor. This episode would be less than a year removed from that. Okay, and he's already and now he's on Steve Allen, so that's that's big. But he's all but he's feeling like very downtrodden about the whole process. I think it was it was what he was talking about with like the warrants out for him and having like less and less places to be able to work and feel so just blocked in. And you know they alluded to that with another set that they had. Do about the pregnancy, Imogene having the baby and all that stuff, and how she just gets kicked off of the stage because she's not allowed to talk about pregnancy. And that was that was interesting because I was going to comment to you before they even were doing that that in our previous episode we had talked about how women were treated like children, yeah. and I was going to comment to you that Imogene was wearing such a childish childish outfit as a pregnant woman. Oftentimes, like if you watch I Love Lucy or something like that, you will see that the oftentimes put a gigantic bow on on maternity clothes during that time and they do this like big polka dots and silly very silly kind of outfits compared to what you see midge and rose wearing which is this like color blocking very sophisticated whatever they're wearing the essential outfit of like a clown okay it is <laughs> bows and billowy and polka dots and green and loud and crazy if you think about women like children and you dress them like that too when they're pregnant, then the idea of talking about her friend actually giving birth or talking about, you know, saying the change purse and the baby has to come out, unacceptable. Because then you have to look at this grown woman who's standing in front of you and like have these ideas that she's not a child, like she's actually going to give birth. And this is like completely like messing with everyone's mind. Like the man couldn't say, say, he was trying to say obstetrician, but he couldn't even, like he didn't know the word and he couldn't say it. You know, he was like, leave that for the whatever office, you know, <laughs> like he couldn't even say it. The fact that she could say, mama didn't raise no pussy, but she couldn't say pregnant. Right. I thought that all of that tied in with Lenny Bruce feeling like 
I don't know what I can say to not have a warrant out for my arrest. I feel so much pressure to to concede their humor to fit these rules all the time that he was just, the chemistry between them had died. The way that he just like walked out of the bar didn't like the, all their little snappy stuff between them, you know, the like, I'll cover this table, all this stuff, and then he's gorgeous and all this stuff. And then he just like, is like, see you later, just... Yeah, he's very much in his own head. Oh, it was so bad. What did you think about their conversation where basically Midge offers to be like his security blanket? Well, she has been of service to him before, you know, got him out of jail. And that was that was a a minor that was, I guess, related to the same sort of trouble that that he's 100 percent. That's what all this is. Yeah. So again, we get back to the the interesting question of why they included Lenny. When, you know, they, they could have made a Lenny Bruce-like character, but they included Lenny, a real person. Especially because, like, they didn't have it be, like, the Jerry Lewis. It was a, a light telethon, you Which know? Which they, they kind of wink at it because uh, when Abe and Rose are just poo-pooing the whole thing, that, that telethons are actually just a scam and it's not a big deal. And I don't even like Jerry Lewis. I don't think he's funny. Like, they meant, they, they, they kind of wink at the other telethon in, in, the, in, the, in the world at that point. You're right. And I, I do... I feel like I have to mention like how cringeworthy that part was when Sophie was doing the interview with the three individuals that that had arthritis. It, like she says things to them like, oh, which one of you going to be number nine? Oh, you, because I can kick that. Uh, you'll be easier to catch. And she acts like she's going to kick the crutch out from under him. Yeah. And then the one lady goes, I can't even pick up my baby granddaughter. And she goes, hold on, I'm going to have a minute. And then she does that like, ah, ah. And like, it's like this fake, crying it was so gross i was like throwing up in my mouth and everyone was like this bit is played out that's what i mean by by, like she's like an observer of people and she's figured out how to make an act but it's not like she is one of us you know what i mean well and she couldn't do exactly what midge does which is like midge would have killed that interview because she could pick up on the other person's interactions she could talk she could make it funny without being offensive necessarily to that person but i felt like she could have done it whereas sophie like she was just just this scripted character that when she had to kind of go off the cuff like that which was it was such an unexpected response from the woman she couldn't even feign like a human response you know what she reminds me of this is going to be probably a little esoteric for listeners but michael richards yeah michael richards played kramer on seinfeld and he killed on seinfeld right right he was legendary as kramer kind of well known for needing to to operate exactly according to the the um, stage directions and the script. He had planned out every single one of those falls. He had planned out every, every one of those funny faces. All that shit wasn't just something off the cuff. It was something that if they, if they said, we got to run this again, it would be the exact same next time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's like Sophie Lennon. And this, what you're saying about her not being able to deal with like roll with the punches. Well, we know what happened to Michael Richards when he did his stand up. Mm-hmm. He was, he felt insulted and he starts yelling at people in the crowd. He starts insulting them, calling them racist names. And all of a sudden is, is in, you know, his career is basically over, but, um, same kind of deal, right? Yeah. Has no he, idea how to deal with people in the moment. Right. And he could, and he could play a character very, very well, but when he had to be himself or in any way, just acting like, 
like we said, like kind of like a normal person. It was like, no, go. This is not happening. So let's get back to Lenny and and the fact that now we have this different dynamic between him and Midge. We go to the Steve Allen show. I didn't know that Lenny Bruce sang. That was quite unexpected. You I mean, can he was- look up this exact act on YouTube. I mean, I get it that it's a, it's a, um, you know, it's a joke in many ways within the song, you know, but it's like kind of painful. (laughs) Dude, I mean, I was cringing. Fucking shit, Steve Allen. You did that on every episode. You just tinkled along on the, on the piano through the whole thing. I I hated it. I hated the whole thing. I really hated it. And, and I thought it was odd too, because, or, or maybe this was supposed to be a message. Do you remember the entire two seasons? they've been like to Midge can you sing well can you sing yeah and it was like no I'm a comedian and so for them this like legendary comedian to sing essentially was like oh no he's like doing a song you know check it out it's on YouTube I believe it it's as painful there as it was on this that's painful really yuck throughout this song there's a montage that we have with again Susie putting up her suit and he's singing all alone. We have really the realization that Abe is meeting with the lawyer. He's going to have this really big fight of this, you know, that's going Mm -hmm. to be coming and he needs this lawyer to be with him. Again, he's realizing he's going to have to go this alone um, in many ways. I'm wondering, do you think Rose and him are going to fracture or do you think the two of them will be able to hang in here? Seeing him impassioned will be enough for Rose. I think that's the kind of change Rose, I mean, I know that she likes living well, but I think seeing Abe like this, I think it'll be, it'll give her what she wants. It'll sustain her, you know, where the money is not going to and I think that your part about that, she she does like to live well. I think that they did a really good job of laying that foundation of their time in, in Paris together. Being more simple. And yeah. that she does have the capacity to have joy in the simple ways of life as well. Right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, really them snuggling on a cot and they were still very, very happy. That gives me a lot more hope than I would have had had we not had those Paris episodes. I would have said that that character cannot possibly be fulfilled without her high end life. But having seen that... I feel like, well, I, I think she actually can suck it up and and have a completely different outlook on life. And then we have Midge that we basically zoom in on. You can see the gears going in her brain that like she is going to have to go this alone. Everything that has led up to this with the season, with Declan Howell, with realizing where she falls into with a life with Benjamin and having to do the jello molds and the raising the kids and being at the park and all that stuff. Having those little moments like meeting the women's activist again at the bar, you know, putting that little back, that nugget back into her head. And then now we have Lenny hating his life, singing a song about how he's so fucking alone. And he just slumped out of the bar. And he's at the height. Comedians don't get bigger than being on Steve Allen in 59. And he thinks it sucks. (laughs) right well and he's still like shakable he's still insecure he's still he he isn't isn't this indestructible force that she had seen before she's starting to realize like if you want to be at that level if you want to be at that successful place this really is about going it alone and you really are going to have to do this she has this moment she comes to joel what were you feeling when she saw you saw her in that doorway this is going to sound funny but it called back to an earlier podcast this 
this season. And I literally thought this as I was watching it. I thought of our podcast. I thought of you saying that he is her Christopher. He is... For you Gilmore Girls watchers, you know what we're talking about. If you're not, it's another Amy Sherman Palladino show in which there's a main woman character, Lorelai, who has a long-standing husband slash boyfriend at different points in time from all the way back when she was 16. And when things get tough... She turns to Christopher. She turns She turns up on his doorstep. They typically have sex when this happens. Always. And so I, I, didn't want to, I didn't want it to be true when you said it in the podcast. And then, damn it, here we are, ending in the same place we almost ended last season with the two of them. In bed. I thought that what she said, though, was so important because I think it would have been really easy to say, like, oh, my God, she went back to Christopher type feeling, right? Yeah. A.K.A. Joel. But... What she said was, I just made a choice and a five-minute phone call, right? So we know she ended it with Benjamin. If you didn't catch that, that's what the five-minute phone call was. And then she said, I'm going to be all alone the rest of my life. I don't want to be alone for tonight. Just for tonight, I need to be with someone who loves me. They're not back together. She just, she recognizes the need for her to do this independently, that this is not going to be something that she can drag anybody along with, including, I think, Susie, y'all. I know, buckle up, people. This is going to get crazy. <laughs> um, I just thought that it, it was very clear to me. Now, do you have any question mark? Like, do you think Joel and her are back together? Do you have any, like, is there anything? Was this not clear? No, this seemed like a one-nighter. It just seemed, um, well, I don't know, uh, not weak, but just... I think it was like Disappointing a, still. Really? Okay, so for me, I took it like it was like a farewell. Needed one last night where she was in the arms of someone she knew loved her because she was anticipating going out on this journey where that was not going to happen. And in fact, if she had anyone in her life, it was going to have to be super casual and not somebody she could be really connected and bonded with because that wouldn't allow her to be doing this alone at all. So it it kind of was like one last moment. I'll give you that. It's just still, I don't know. It's the kind of thing that you put in like a rock song or something, a ballad, right? Like, one last night before I move on, you know. Uh, so you okay. didn't like it? Uh, it wasn't for me, no. But it, I, I appreciate it because uh, I like the storytelling. I like the characters. I'm not going to be like, well, the show's ruined. It's, it's not It's not like that. It's just she made a choice I, I don't agree with, but but I, I'm, I'm still interested to see how things play out. For me, it was an understandable choice because her kids are not big enough to like go to and have that sort of like comfort that like they're going to still be there when she gets back after a six month gig or whatever. They're, they're just like little and they can't really provide that kind of security. And Joel can, like he can say, you're amazing. You're awesome. You can do this. And she needed that like final send off to me to be able to launch off into her independence. So I was okay with it. I could have also been okay with it though, if she just made that choice straight from her experience with Lenny at the Steven, at the Steve Allen show and just moved on, like had some sort of cab ride voiceover or something, you know, or some sort of conversation with her parents or something that could have also been similar. But you know, I, I'm okay with the way that this went. I love the zombie song that they played at the very end. But it also was a little confusing because the song is This Will Be Our Year. Mm. Our Year. Right. And that's looking forward. I mean, you don't say that this is 
this is this was our year. This this will be our year. Yeah, and our not my year. This will be my year. <laughs> like so, that does give me a little heebie-jeebies. That it's like she's gonna go for six months, but she's gonna come back. Joel's gonna own the club, and then this is gonna be our year. Our only kind of implies together if you if you look at it like it's a couple's song. Okay, tell me more. You could still have independently good years. I guess that's true. And maybe that maybe that is how you could absolutely interpret it. That the if you could ladies look up the lyrics of the song, but essentially it's like, I'm never gonna forget how you lifted me up when I was down and all this stuff, and this is gonna be our year. You're right. It could be ours parallel lives, you know, both going well at the same time. And it could be even a group. As you mentioned, Susie's got a path now. Abe's got a path now. Midge has a path now. Joel has a path now. And they don't necessarily interconnect. Very true. Very true. They're all allowed to have their own adventures here, which I think is very exciting for season three. They make this show so damn well. Now you got to wait until like Thanksgiving again to to see it. I'm really sad. I felt like this went so fast because we did our podcast. We doubled up on a lot of these and that makes me like sad in a way. But at the same time, I feel like they took such good care of these characters. I mean, from the cat skills and everything that we did there, that felt so fresh and fun and cool. The the little moments, the one-liners with Abe, the, his rise to be almost a, a main character, not a supporting actor, but a main character yeah. was so fantastic. I just thought he like stole the show on many episodes. Given what they have in store for him, we don't know for sure. But I mean, if he's going to like become this activist and start suing the shit out of people, I mean, that's not like a, a background person's storyline. You know what I mean? Exactly. Well, and I think that societally, that's where we're headed in 1960. You know, they touched on these little things, the women's movement, you know, not being able to talk about pregnancy, the fact that Abe had always fought these corporations and always fought these people. And now he was ready to, to grab up the the mantle again and come, you know, come back to the cause. I think with shy Baldwin, we're going to see some truly bad discrimination with him. I think as we go on this tour with him and Midge, I think her eyes are going to be open to what people of color had to endure in 1960. And maybe there's even going to be a whole thing about places they can stay. Maybe he's not going to be able to stay or eat at places that she can. I mean, there's a lot of things that they can kind of delve into getting into the civil rights movement. It almost sounds like the third season stands to be dark, but in my experiences with Amy, I mean, there are seasons of her, of her television shows that people like more than others, but no one's, I don't know when, that anyone's ever called one a dark season. I think that the, that the subject matter is potentially a lot more thought provoking, you know, to thinking about all these things that were going on in our country during that time and just in the world. But then also I think that they will handle it in a way that through their character development, that I think is going to help us through where I don't feel like it's going to feel so dark as much as it's going to feel like we're going to go through this process with the characters and watch how they grow and how they change through this chaotic changing time that was going from the 50s into the 60s. Okay. So I'm really looking forward to it. I'm excited. I can't wait for season three. Me neither. It's just we've got a lot of things to watch before then. Oh my God. So we've got This Is Us going on. We have the Orville, Paul's writing reviews 
We're doing This Is Us. It's so exciting, you guys, coming up on Tuesday nights. We're also watching Deadly Class. And if you guys want to come on over and live tweet with us on Wednesday nights, that's super fun and cool and different. Something completely different for me. Don't forget the passage on Monday nights. I am super jazzed about the passage. I think that that is going so well and so interesting. I'm loving it. All right. How about this? We also have Westworld and The Handmaid's Tale, which will be coming along. I don't know if it'll be spring or summer or when, but it will be coming along as oh, well. Don't forget. Stranger Things comes out this spring. That's right. I'm excited. We will cover that as well. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. Thanks. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.